What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Experience. The podcast about overcoming struggles and adversity and how that relates to addiction, recovery, and health. I am your host and the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, Angie Manson. And I'm Dallas Terrell, co-host and life intervention counselor at Elevate. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Elevate Experience podcast. Today, I am your host, your co-host, and your guest. So Angie's out of town, and uh, I decided to do a solo podcast for the audience, for the fans, get something out there for you guys. So hopefully, I do uh, a decent job. Hopefully, I don't bore you too much. Uh, If you're thinking, wow, I've been waiting for an episode where it's just Dallas, today's your day. If you've been waiting for an episode that is just Angie, today's not your day. Anyways, guys, I uh, you know I don't I don't really love the idea of delivering like a monologue to a broad audience on a broad topic. That's not really my wheelhouse or my forte. I don't think I uh, thrive just giving broad advice or just general good things to do. I think Instagram is for that reason. If you want broad, general, usually bad advice, go to Instagram. Find an online fitness coach or a you know, one of those guys you see on your Instagram that's selling you some program and pay them for just broad, general, uh inexperienced advice. And if you are one of those people and you're listening, I'm slightly kidding, slightly not, but I think it's funny. Anyway, so what should we talk about today? There's no feedback from the audience. I haven't prepared anything. That's actually halfway true. That's halfway true. I have prepared something very minute, like a rough, rough idea of things that have helped me in my sobriety, things that I've found to really kind of like enhance or or further my understanding of addiction and sobriety and recovery. And I think I'm going to share a couple of like the books that have done that for me and kind of offer them as, you know, maybe helpful resources or tools for, for you guys as the audience. I'm kind of playing off the idea here that the audience is generally sober or practicing recovery or practicing sobriety, or they have loved ones or family members that are in, you know, some sphere of that world. So, you know, uh, let's see, where do I want to start? So I wanted to kind of start with myself. So my, my situation is a little bit different where, you know, I took a career path to become uh, an alcohol and drug counselor, a CADC, a KDAC, an addictions counselor, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, two year and a half, two years into sobriety, I became a KDAC and realized that helping people navigate addiction and recovery was just kind of like a wheelhouse thing for me. It was something I was super passionate about, something I really cared about, and I could see myself doing it for a long period of time. And so I sought that route out. And to be honest, you can only really learn so much from from a course or a textbook or a schooling about addiction. I personally think addiction's a lived experience. I think being able to connect with, you know, the clients that elevate by by just broadly saying, hey, you know, I'm recovering from heroin and crack myself. I've been sober for seven years. I've been, 
I've been living the same the same life and the same problems and the same struggles is extremely beneficial for, you know, kind of the therapeutic alliance or the client counselor relationship. I always put it like this. If you want to get good at golfing, you're not going to learn from someone that's never golfed before. And if you've ever golfed or played played the game of golf, you would know that there's no book in the world that will teach you the experience of golf. There's a book that could probably help you at golfing, but the thing that will help you in the long run is the experience of playing golf. And I think addiction is very much like that. You can't know what you don't know, right? In uh, previous treatment centers, sorry, I'm drinking coffee, guys. Um, in previous exper- uh, treatment centers, I've had therapists that you know weren't addicts or in recovery themselves, and you know I had trouble connecting with them. I was like, dude, you know I shoot heroin into my neck, and you went to school for eight years. Like we're we're different people, you know. I think it's gonna be hard. You can only understand so much. You don't know. You don't understand what it's like to sleep under a bridge, to use cardboard as a pillow, to eat out of a trash can to beat people up for $10, to go against who you are as a person for $5. You can't really understand that unless you've done some things like that. And at least that's my experience, and that's also my opinion. I'm sure there's plenty of therapists and counselors out there that are helping today with without the experience of those addictions, and that's okay. That's just why I kind of stated it's my opinions. It's not the facts, but to me it feels true, and uh, we're going to roll with that, all right? So let's see, I had this, I had this uh, fear that I would just kind of ramble and go a million different ways. I want to blame it on being ADHD, but mostly it might just be because I'm unprepared. So there's uh, some, some honesty for you guys. Okay, so getting back to some things that have helped me out in my recovery that I think are valuable and that I could share with the audience the first thing I would mention is a book, a series of books. The books are called, one of the books, they're, they're all different names. One of the books is called 12 Stupid Things to Mess Up Your Recovery. Another one is 12 Smart Things to Do Once the Drugs and Booze Are Gone. In both of those books, the other one is uh, 12 Reasons to Make Amends. Now, if you were a client at Elevate and ever worked with me, and did the amends process of the program, you would know there's a book called 12 Reasons to Make Amends, and I have all the clients read it. I think it's the best description or language to describe the amends process, the reasons behind it, and kind of the mechanics, like the deeper layers to making amends. Wonderful book. However, there's two other ones that I think are just as helpful for different areas of life. emotional sobriety and then you know one of them's really good for emotional they're both good for emotional sobriety but i think one's a list of things to do and one's a list of things to not do which are equally as important i feel like to relate it to myself before i knew who i was i for sure knew who i was not you know and that's what early recovery looked like for me was really getting clear on who i wasn't or who i didn't want to be once I got clear on that, I could put in the work and effort to investigate who I wanted to be. So I think both books are equally as important, and I don't think it matters where you start. 
So the books are written by Dr. Alan Berger. He is obviously a doctor, psychologist as well, and he's been sober for probably close to 40 years. And his books are kind of like an extension of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an extension of recovery. Throughout my life in counseling, I've, I've, I've come to understand that AA isn't always enough for people. Some people need more. And I think Dr. Berger really stepped up in delivering clinical additional work for people in recovery, right? If you're a client or if you are, you know, been to treatment, there's, think about the last group you were in. I'm sure there was plenty of people reaching more that wanted more. They really wanted to get sober and they wanted all the information that was out there. That was me. But as a counselor, you know, I really wanted to be able to help anybody. I wanted to be able to relate to anything. I wanted to have the tools, the tricks, the trades, the resources to help as many people as possible. And I couldn't really get there without my own learning, without my own understanding of what is out there. So I kind of went off the principle of one of these books and one of the main principles, excuse me while I pull it up real quick, is... Where is it? Internet. There it is. Pursuing recovery. Oh, this okay. So this this is from the book Twelve Stupid Things to Mess Up Recovery. Stupid thing number three or chapter three is pursuing recovery with less energy than pursuing addiction. Right. So I think about being an addict, being addicted, running the streets of you know whatever city I was. The amount of effort and work I put into getting high was absurd. The things I was willing to do, the places I was willing to go, was next level, right? Like, there was no, nothing was really off the table. And so, if you flip that and kind of reverse engineer it and look at why, why am I doing these crazy things to stay high, and I'm not doing these crazy difficult things to stay sober. And that's a question to answer for yourself, obviously. But for me, I knew the answer. And it was like blatantly obvious that like, wow, I was willing to go to the ends of the earth to, to stay high. And in return, I stayed high for a really long time. Now, I'm willing to go to the end of the earth to stay sober and recover and become better and smarter and faster and stronger and all those good adjectives. So for me, that's been a big, a big um, like theme in staying sober for me is like putting in the extra effort to get better and getting better being just a broad term for recovering. So that's a that's a chapter from the book that I found to be I don't want, I mean I guess pivotal, but just a pillar of my own recovery is like. If I want to stay sober so bad, which I, which I believed and I felt, what am I willing to do to get that? What am I willing to do to achieve recovery? And what does that even look like? So that was a huge thing. So we'll, we'll kind of bring it a little bit forward. Uh, stupid thing number one in the book is believing addiction to one substance is the only problem. I think that's helpful in a lot of ways, especially if, you know, maybe you're like me and you're a heroin crack addict and then you get sober and you're like, I never had a problem with alcohol. I never had a problem with pot. 
why can't I do those things? And, you know, that that's a that's a topic we don't need to get into because there's not a one size fits all answer. But I do believe that cross addiction is a real thing. And I do think in my own experience and opinion was I couldn't drink alcohol. I couldn't smoke pot. You know, I didn't want to like, I kind of know what I like and what I liked was heroin and crack. And anytime I drank or smoked pot, it lowered my inhibitions and I'd wind up smoking crack or smoking heroin or shooting heroin, whatever it was, taking Xanax, like alcohol and pot wasn't good enough for me. But when I got them in my system, it really let my guard down and allowed me to kind of make poor decisions, which, which I did while I was on drugs for a very long time. I historically made bad decisions. So smoking pot did not help with that. Neither did drinking alcohol. So that's a good topic, right? Kind of believing that addiction to one substance is our only problem, right? The cocaine isn't the problem. For me, the heroin wasn't the problem. The crack wasn't the problem. It wasn't the alcohol. It wasn't the pot. It's not the substance. It's me and what's under that. So if what's under all that isn't fixed or cured or resolved or at least being worked on productively, the substance is just a vehicle, you know? So I think as far as the takeaway goes, it's understanding that this substance is not the only problem. It's not even really the real problem. It's kind of the solution. It's the solution to whatever problem is under that. And that, my friends, is not a simple topic or a small conversation for one man to have with a microphone with no feedback. Okay, stupid thing number two. Believing sobriety will fix everything. I love this topic. Being sober, I think, is the vehicle or the platform to starting to realize what you need to fix, right? Dr. Anna Limke is the head of addiction research and medicine at Stanford, and she prescribes abstinence as the first part of any treatment program or therapy or counseling. It's hard to evaluate what's wrong or not working if you're continuing to bog it down with drugs and alcohol. It's hard to figure out who someone is. It's hard to figure out who I was on cocaine. I was not the same version of me when I was on cocaine or meth or Xanax or heroin. All four of those substances would bring out four different versions of who I was as a person. So in order to get a baseline of like where we're at, who we are, what needs help, what doesn't, there needs to be abstinence. There needs to be, um, sorry, the computer's being all weird. There needs to be some sort of baseline, right? And we can't really establish that baseline if we're not sober. Like what does the, the baseline foundation look like? So if we believe that sobriety will fix everything, then just being sober is the only goal. I'm sure you guys have heard that there's a difference between sobriety and there's a difference between recovery, right? Think about people white knuckling. If getting off drugs was the only solution, there would only be detox centers. I can think of a handful of people I know that just wanted to detox. That's the problem. Drugs are the problem. If I can just get the drugs out of the way and stop detoxing and feel a little bit better, then I'll just stay sober. 
generally it doesn't work like that. Maybe for some people it does, but again, going back to the drugs are not the problem. So believing that just getting sober will fix everything is a little far-fetched. It's a little off. It's a little off. It's not good enough. So if just getting sober won't fix everything, what will? I don't know. I could point you in the right direction. I could give you some general advice. However, everyone's issues are a little bit different. So it's more of just kind of um, something to think about, you know, that it takes a lot of hard work to get sober, you know, and there's more to change than just getting off the drugs. But getting off the drugs is a great start, and we'll take it. I'll absolutely take that. Oh, dude, next one's great. So we're going to skip stupid thing number three because we already went over it. Pursuing recovery with less energy than pursuing addiction. Handled. Step number or stupid thing number four. Being selectively honest. So what does that mean? Being honest when you feel like it. Right? Basically tricking yourself into thinking you're being honest but you're being selective about it right so a good example if you're familiar with the elevate program rs's the responsibility steps making amends right i would rather write up right so the idea is to write up all the bad things we've ever done okay there are certain things i did not want people to know there were certain things I was, you know, totally fine with people knowing. For example, I did heroin and crack and Xanax and beat people up and stole and robbed and cheated and lied. I did all those things, right? And I have no problem being honest about those things because I just don't care. But there are those things that you do care about that you want no one to know that you wouldn't tell a soul. And if you choose to not acknowledge those then you are being selectively honest, especially when it comes to a process that requires vigorous honesty, like a step four, you know, or a step nine, making amends, becoming completely honest about the things we've done to another person. So the big takeaway on that is don't pump up your ego by being honest with things that don't hurt completely as bad, right? If you're covering things up and hiding things, you are being selectively honest, and that might not be a beneficial thing for you. What else do I have on that? I don't know. I guess, you know, coming from a world of addiction and drug addiction and alcoholism, we lied all the time, you know? So for me, if I was lying 80% of the time and telling the truth 20% of the time, once I got sober, it probably went automatically down to about 95% truth, 5% lie, right? But those 5%, that 5% difference of still lying while in recovery, while sober, can still be very detrimental. So it's like, uh, yes, be stoked that you're lying 5% of the time rather than 80% of the time. And you should be concerned that we're still lying, Right? Lying is a behavior. It's a habit. It's something we practice for a very long time. It takes time to unlearn. Right? I can think of plenty of clients I've told to just say, hey, dude, if you catch yourself lying, the best way to stop it is to acknowledge it. 
to admit it. Feel some shame about it. Like, hey, I lied. That was stupid. I don't know why I did that. But own it. You probably will feel shame or guilt for lying. But that feeling, that negative consequence can really help you unlearn the behavior. Right? Like we lie because we think the truth would hurt more. But what if the lie or the falsity actually hurt more than the truth? Right? What if you came to my office and said, hey, man, last Last group I lied, I told people I took eight Xanax bars instead of four. And I'd be like, oh, that's silly. Why'd you do that? It's no big deal. Just tell the truth next time. And you're like, oh, wow. That wasn't as bad as I thought. Now you have some evidence to realize that lying, you know, or telling the truth wasn't as bad as the lie. So that was kind of my final thoughts on that. Don't be selectively honest. And if you are selectively selectively honest, don't gas yourself up for being a truthful, honest person when you can't do it all the time or it's not something you're working on. Stupid thing number five, feeling special and unique. I guess what I mean by that or what he meant by that probably could have been something along the lines of no one will understand me. No one gets the way that I feel no one's lived the experience that experiences that I have, right? I'm a very special, unique case of alcoholic addict. While that may be true in some senses of the word, it may be just a wall you built up so that no one really knows, right? If you go to enough AA meetings, you'll hear people say, hey, I was just a garden variety drunk. I was just a garden variety addict. I went to treatment seven times, and I've been in the treatment field for eight years. Heroin addicts have a lot in common. Crystal meth addicts have a lot in common. This isn't a very unique problem. right? Most problems that we experience as humans are generic. They're the same. We all struggle to find love. We all struggle to find money and comfort and joy and happiness. It's, you know, there's not really these new or unique problems. However, our ego tells us that they are special and they are unique and that no one would know or people couldn't understand. And how could you help me? You don't know what it's like. And it's like, dude, yes, yes, I do. I know what it's like to be addicted. I know what it's like to have no hope, to hate yourself, to not know who you are, all that stuff, right? So feeling special and unique, though important and true that you are a special person and that you are unique in who you are as a person can sometimes be a bad, uh, unhelpful, I don't want to say bad, but it could be an unhelpful belief as far as getting sober especially if you use it as a crutch to create distance from help. Moving on. Step number or stupid thing number 6, not making amends. Yeah. How are you supposed to feel better if your subconscious is still full of guilt and shame from the things that we've done in the past? Right? How are you supposed to be a new person if you don't even believe that you are? How does not fixing something fix something? Just a couple questions to think about. Yeah. 
make not making amends is 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 not okay make the amends you'll feel better and then also think about this whatever mechanics or justifications or narrative you have in your mind about why not to do something especially making amends you should run that by somebody a therapist a counselor a mentor someone you look up to name it name it out loud to somebody else and see if it sounds crazy because i'm probably probably guessing it would step number seven or god i keep saying step so the irony here is there's 12 stupid things and there's also 12 steps in aa so i think that's why i'm doing that hopefully you guys aren't too bored i think this is cool i love this shit okay stupid thing number seven using the program to try and become perfect okay let's see what do i have on that i don't really do the aa program so you know i can't say i have too much on that but i would imagine you know you're you're like chasing perfection through aa or you know setting up all the coffee setting up all the tables you're like almost overachieving to make up for something else right like you want people to think you're running the perfect program, you know, and that can relate to Elevate and other treatment centers, you know, like pretending that everything's perfect. It's almost like flying under the radar. Like you look so good as a teacher's pet or something that no one thinks anything's wrong and nothing gets addressed because you're just an all-star, you know, it's like, it'd be like Tom Brady, dude, and this, the football player, like he's so good. How could a coach really fix him if he's the best? But I'm sure there's coaches out there that are tweaking Tom Brady a little bit here, a little bit there, and getting Tom Brady just 1% better. Even though he's the shit, he is the best. But even he needs work. So I guess trying to be perfect is just kind of backwards in the first place. But definitely don't use the AA program to try and become perfect. That's what Dr. Berger says. Stupid thing number eight. Confusing self-concern with selfishness. Okay, let's look into that. Confusing self-concern with selfishness. Okay, okay. So I guess a good example that would come up for me is like, I'm not going to pick up the phone and call my sponsor, or I'm not going to pick up the phone and reach out to somebody because I don't want to bother them. I don't want to annoy them. I don't want to be a hassle to them. I'm being selfish. It's not all about me, me, me. However, there could be these glaring concerns. There could be something wrong with you. And just because you care about that does not make you selfish, right? You being the most important person on this planet is true to you, right? How can you love yourself if how can you love somebody else if you don't love you? Right, You are very important. So being concerned with yourself or your well-being or your mental well-being or your mental health is very important and it's not selfish. It's not selfish to take care of yourself. And I think that's all I got on that. And it's easily done. Easily done. Stupid thing number nine. Playing futile self-improvement games. Let me see if there, I wonder if there's an example on that. That's 
That's not really uh Well let's let's make things easier. What does futile mean? I wanna double check. Definition Definition of futile. Futile means incapable of producing any useful result. A good synonym would be pointless. So a stupid thing to do would to be playing pointless self-improvement games. Okay, okay. I think that kind of goes back to the selective honesty. It's like, yo, I'm not I'm I'm honest 95% of the time, but there's still 5% of the time I'm lying. You know? How is that helpful? It's like a negative graph, you know? It's not as uh yeah, I don't know. I think it'd be like saying I only killed eight people today as opposed to ten. Right? You're like comparing two negatives, but because one's less negative, it's better. And that might not always be the case. You shouldn't kill anybody today. You should still only have killed zero people today. <laughs> so maybe that's a stupid, uh, pointless self-improvement game to play. Right? I guess a good example of that could be like, I don't know. I, I I smoked 19 cigarettes today instead of 20. You know, like what about let's, what about 10? Let's smoke half. 19 cigarettes as opposed to 20 is probably just as bad. Anyways, I wonder if that makes any sense. Oh, dude, I'm so glad we're coming back with this next one. Here we go. Stupid thing number 10: not getting help for relationship troubles. Boom. Addiction is a very codependent thing. We are using substances and people and places and things to make ourselves feel better. So when we get rid of the drugs, we often just replace them with people. How can these people make me feel better about who I am? Most people in treatment or with addiction, disorders, substance abuse, have codependency issues. We like to use things to make ourselves feel better about us. And that's okay if you're aware of it. That's okay if you're working on it. I think we're all working on that. My fiance makes me feel great. And I love that about her. And I love her. Right? But I can't only feel great with her. Because what if she's not here? What if she's gone? What if she's, you know, whatever? Then I just feel like shit. I rely on her to feel good about me? No. So... I think getting help for relationship troubles is super important. And another thing, too, is, you know, you get sober and then you get in a relationship and you start to experience and process some of the most confusing emotions out there. Jealousy, lust, envy, sadness, depression, whatever, right? Like, in a relationship, like, think about a girl breaking your heart or think about a dude breaking your heart. Yo, that's like the top of the, that's like top tier emotions, right? I remember going into treatment and it was just like, how do you feel today? And I'm like, oh, I feel good, right? Like I, I struggled with just the baseline basic emotions like joy, sadness, tired, lethargy, hungry, like let alone heartbreak, envy jealousy, 
you know, just kind of those top tier emotions you experience in relationships. Ay, ay, ay. So basically, right, what I'm saying is if you don't get help for relationship troubles, if you don't know how to deal with the emotions that come up in relationships, which can be fragile, which can be, what's another good word for that? Intimate, you know, like very like sensitive topics, very vulnerable pieces of ourselves come out in relationships. And if they're not treated correctly, we can get super hurt. And what do we use to deal with pain? Drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, whatever. So it can be a recipe for disaster. And, you know, to the audience, think about how many people you've known that have relapsed or went back out or, you know, had some negative consequences from just, you know, relationship issues. So that's a pretty hefty one, team. That's definitely one to think with. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up soon. I'm almost done. I'm sorry, guys, if I'm boring you. But this is all I got. Okay. Stupid thing number 11. I kind of like this one. Believing that life should be easy. Why would that be a stupid thing? Well, probably because 99% of human beings would, would, would agree that life is not easy and life is hard, right? So maybe believing that getting sober would make life easier is also false. Life is still life, right? Life was hard on drugs. Life has been hard in sobriety. The only difference is I can at least handle it now. People still pass away. Car accidents still happen. Tragedies still happen. Life still happens. All the bad things that can happen will, you're just sober. You know, I remember thinking... If I ever lost somebody close to me in sobriety, how would I get through that? How would I deal with that pain? And I have lost people, dude. You know, I've lost best friends. I've seen loss, man. It's, it's always going to be hard. But at least when you're sober, you get to feel it. You know? You get to actually feel it and experience it and process, and grow, and learn, and adapt, and foster, you know? I remember smoking heroin at my uncle's funeral to deal with the pain, and I remember being so shameful of myself because I couldn't cry at his funeral when I wanted to. I was so high and numb that I couldn't even tap into my emotions. I couldn't even be sad for something that was so upsetting you know I would much rather feel than not feel I think the feeling is what makes us alive it makes us human the fact that we do care the fact that we are emotional the fact that it was upsetting means something right it means nothing if you don't feel anything what does it mean I mean I did heroin and was checked out because I was afraid to hurt. But I should have hurt. It should have been sad that my uncle passed away. He was awesome. He was a great person. And the world lost an amazing man. And I didn't feel anything over that. Even though I wanted to. Conflicting. Very conflicting feeling. So, you know, believing that life should be easy is a false belief. Especially that you get sober, life should be butterflies and rainbows. It's not. It's not. 
It's definitely a lot better. But it doesn't mean that bad shit won't happen. I think you guys know that. But if you didn't, there's a good reminder. Okay, moving into the last step, guys. We got stupid thing number 12. Using the program, referring to the AA program or NA program, to handle everything. Why could that be stupid? Well, because you can't just put, you know, okay, well, let's rewind that back. Say you have a sponsor in AA. You go to him for a lot of things, you know. Addiction uh, recovery from drugs and alcohol is a very, like, broad life thing. Most people struggle with life problems. You know, how do I get a job? Do you know where I should work? How do you stay sober at work? Where should I vacation? How should I budget? How should I pay taxes? Like, sobriety is a pretty big box, and it's uh, it's really encompassing, but it's not all-encompassing. You shouldn't ask your sponsor, uh you know, like medical advice. You shouldn't ask your sponsor if these medications are okay to take or not to take. So I think those are kind of like some big pitfalls to avoid is like, you know, your sponsor is not a therapist. They are not clinically certified. You know, they are just sharing their experience and their experience is is limited just as is mine, just as is yours. Right, So kind of putting all your faith in one person isn't always the best move. And I think that's something to be weary or cautious of. Another thing that I could probably add on to that is this. Most people's recovery or most people's idea of how to get sober is just a projection. Right, It's the projection of their experience. And their experience isn't always going to be the same as yours. And I know that. I remember years of counseling, times in my life when I thought I knew the way. But in reality, I knew the way for me. And I generally knew some good pointers and tips for other people. However, I did not have the answers for everybody. The way I got sober is not going to work for everyone. You know? And I don't think people disclaim that enough. The Elevate program isn't the only way to get sober. AA is not the only way to get sober, and it doesn't work for everybody, and that's okay. But it generally does. It generally has some good, healthy tips. Just like it's generally smart to say drink water, eat food, take your vitamins, and work out. That's generally a great prompt into healthy living. It doesn't cover everything. So don't forget that. A lot of people will project that they have the answers, but those answers were for them. So be mindful of that. Be cautious of that. Don't get caught in you know, other people's projections of what's right or wrong for you. It's your life. It's your recovery. You need to figure out what you need. You know. So who knows, guys? Maybe that's a good place to end. The book is, you can buy them all online on Amazon for, I don't know, probably 15 bucks. He just came out with a new one, too, all about emotional sobriety. And that shit's bomb. You're going to love that stuff. So moral of the story, if you want to know how to get sober, learn about what that looks like. Explore the internet. Explore podcasts. Ask people. Collect some data. 
Talk to me, talk to Angie, talk to your sponsor, talk to your therapist, talk to your parents, talk to people in meetings, and pull, pull the information. See how it lands with you. See how it feels for you. And then make your own decisions. Be independent, right? And if you don't have the answer, look to somebody, right? But there are some answers you do have. You don't need to have all of them, but you do have some of them, and and you should make healthy decisions pertaining to your own recovery. It could look different than somebody else's. And they might not have all the tools you need for your own recovery, and that's okay. And that's what helped me. You know, I wanted to learn about the immense process, emotional sobriety. I wanted to know about relapse prevention because I wanted to know for me, and then once I knew, I could help somebody else with that. Right? Sobriety became my addiction. I'm addicted to staying sober. I love the results and the outcomes that have come from it. And I like who I am when I'm not on drugs. I enjoy that person. And how could I double down on that? How could I do more instead of less? And what would going full send on recovery look like for Dallas? And part of the solution to that was books, learning, reading. Go to Amazon right now and type in addiction workbooks. 50,000 things will pop up. Right? There's 50,000 books you could work on to just get a little bit better. Right? And the idea behind that, even under all of that, is stagnancy. It's like recovery is a journey, not a destination. There's no recovered point that you get to. So keep pushing it, you know? Go find some new resources. Go learn something new. Go practice a new skill. Get up to speed on emotional sobriety. We can all navigate our emotions just a little bit better. I can guarantee that. So I'm just ranting, guys. Let's see. It's been uh, 41 minutes of just me talking. That's disgusting. Hopefully Hopefully you guys got something out of this. You know, Angie will be back for the next pod. We got some good ones coming up. Uh, if you like the episode, share it with a buddy. Share it with a friend. Maybe someone you know that could use some motivation or some tips or tricks on navigating sobriety. We're all in this together, my friends. If you're sober today, I'm proud of you. If you're working on getting sober, I'm proud of you. If you're a human being, I'm probably proud of you. But, yeah, man, this has been fun. I probably won't do this again because it's been hard. I'm definitely going to re-listen to this, and I hope it works because I don't have a lot of time today to to do another podcast. All right, guys, much love. I hope you enjoyed. Let me know if you did. You can follow me on Instagram at DallasRRT on Instagram. Yeah, come follow me, guys. Say what up. I love connecting with sober people. I love just connecting with people in general, and if I could be helpful or if I can help you out with anything, I'd probably like to. Um So yeah, happy Monday. Is it Monday? Yeah, it's Monday. Yeah, because I'll post this tomorrow. Happy Monday. Crush the week. Get after it. Have some fun. And uh, don't miss out on the cool things that are there in life, you know? My buddy said something cool. He said, "What would you? how would you hug somebody if you knew it was your last hug? The last hug you were going to give. Tomorrow you'd wake up with no arms. How would you hug somebody? That's deep. Imagine not being able to hug somebody tomorrow. 
how would you hug them today and what would that look like and how would that feel so go do that i'll catch you guys on the next episode take care all right guys that's our show for today i hope you found some value from listening and if you did please share with someone you know or love you can find us on social media we are at elevate addiction services and if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction please call our toll-free confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org